Hi everyone, welcome to the next edition of the Nantech Podcast. My name's Ian Cutters, I'm your host, and today our podcast is a little different. I'm sitting here with Intel Fellow Gen- Dr. Genevieve Bell. Dr. Bell is an anthropologi- anthropologist by trade, and she's been with Intel for the best part of 15 years. Nearly 16, in fact. Nearly ah! 16. And uh, as, as I understand, you examine the intersection of technology with human t- interaction. I do. That's always been my gig. I mean, ever since I came to Intel 15 or 16 years ago, 16, I guess, my job's been to think about the kind of intersection of people and technology, but also to think about what it is that people want, what they want for themselves, their kids, their families, and then also what frustrates them, and how do we use all of those insights to drive next-generation technology development. But these days, I get to add to that job description. That's the full-time anthropology job description. These days, I'm also in our corporate strategy office, and my job is to think over the kind of time horizon about what the next 10 years would look like. So I'm thinking full-time anthropologist, part-time futurist. Employer Intel. Yes, exactly. Well, a paycheck. <laughs> precisely. Well, that's actually the good part of that. Yes. But, you know, I think most people would go, wait a second, Anth- Intel has a full-time anthropologist and a part-time futurist, and it's a woman and it's me. And it's like, the answer is yes. And that's very good. It is. It's most excellent. From our perspective, on the consumer side especially, we see uh, people think of companies as black boxes. There's, pre- uh, there's press releases on one mm-hmm. side and products at the other. And here we're at Intel Developers Forum. 2015, and we're talking about developers and makers, and mm-hmm. you recently did a keynote today mm-hmm. that was all about the maker community and how you want to drive new experiences using the ideas of others. For my first question, I'm actually going to dive right into some meat. I would expect nothing less. The, 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 the attitude that you gave at the presentation was very altruistic. You want people with ideas to use to hopefully have Intel to build the products that people need and people will do this on the fact that others need that either need that assistance or they see an opportunity but underlying everything especially in the corporate strategy office you have to think about the next revenue generation schemes for intel so where where is the growth and where is the revenue and that kind of feels at odds almost like a dichotomy against our you know, the altruistic intentions in the front. So even though you have, you want, you want to integrate with the makers, you know, with the community to build these products, you still want them to use Intel inside because that's the revenue generation scheme. No, uh, listen, I think, you know, Intel's a, I mean, I, I, I guess I would imagine we're a little bit more open than that. So it's certainly the case that the maker community and developers more broadly is a really interesting and important space for Intel. The maker community is a new space for us to be working in, and the technology we've developed there, Edison, Galileo, Curie, those started out with a maker audience, but have kind of grown to a much larger one. Curie in particular is finding uh, space inside the kind of burgeoning IoT ecosystem, and I imagine we'll see more movement there. And I think for the CEO, for Brian Krasanich, the maker movement was this place that he is personally engaged with, he clearly cares about it a great deal, and I think for him there's this sort of extraordinary moment of people with optimism and innovation and this kind of chance to say what would engaging with this different audience look like for us and I think it's still the early days of thinking about what that will be for us. So it, so is the maker community essentially the new name of Intel's IoT strategy? Almost? I don't think so. No, I think of them as being adjacent to one another, that there's room to think about IoT that's large-scale deployments, you know, city level, but then there's stuff that's smaller. I mean, you know, I had Ken Krieger in my keynote earlier today talking about a purpose-built solution for 
Doctors Without Borders in Africa looking at the Ebola outbreak now. That's not a product you necessarily want to scale to the planet. It's sort of small scale, right? But it's small and important scale. Is it an IoT deployment? I mean, kind of. They're Internet of Connected Things. But, you know, is that going to be something that a large scale company is going to go off and build and build billions of them? I don't think so. So I think there's sort of room here to imagine there is the maker community, a bunch of different kinds of developers in that space. There's an educational component. And there's also this sort of larger scaling up of IoT into full-size enterprise. And that in between, there's just an enormous amount of room. The, the, the tablet that you presented on stage, it was designed for the Ebola crisis to mm-hmm. be able to use a um, a tablet that could be sterilized, essentially. <laughs> Bleached, basically. Bleached, yes. Yep. So, so that epitomizes the altruistic aspect of the community. But then you speak about large-scale city deployments, and then in comes the commercial aspect and the potential for revenue generation, both from the company using the Intel product and Intel themselves. Does that not fly in the face of the altruistic intentions? Because some people will specifically try and move the focus towards the revenue generation instead of the application. I think there's always going to be a range, right? The same yeah. with traditional computation. There are always a range of people who were building things and making things, and they ran the gamut from small-scale enterprise to yeah. very big companies, and I think this is going to be the same. It's going to be small-scale deployments that are purpose-built, that may be in non-commercial arenas, and there'll be stuff that's commercial too. And I think that's, in some ways, the nature of computation, right, is that it's yeah. always run the gamut from small-scale stuff to really big things and to every point in between. And I think, you know, for Intel, it's about how do we support all of those points. When you're dealing with um, Intel doing their you know, product development, working with OEMs, mm-hmm. and deciding what experiences you're going to enable for the user based on you know, the research internally, when we apply that to the maker community as well, the obviously the data set becomes enormous. At what point do the do, do the ethics discussions or the input of government level as to whether what what is being done is the right thing? So, for example, we saw on stage the anthropomorphic Edison robot, you know, the one um, the one that spoke, and then we had a Q and A session speaking about the anthropomorphization of technology, whether technology is going to have a personality, a gender, whether it's going to talk to each other things around the house and, you know, we see things like Apple's Siri and Microsoft's Cortana and it's doing a lot of data mining and data analysis about the person and this extent to personal security. So you're running the gamut from personal security to at what point does the government say, well, hang on, we want in on this. Do you, do you ever examine how that affects the way you advise, you know, your internal staff based on the, you know, the maker community and when it comes down to OEMs? So there are lots of conversations going on inside Intel about what the nature of this whole world is going to be like, right? We have a significant group of people who think about public policy and who yeah. think about privacy. We have a privacy officer like many companies do. We think about what sort of data is being collected and how that world will unfold. I think, you know, there are mindful conversations being had at Intel and in other places about what that looks like. And I think, you know, as I said to you in a conversation earlier, we're in a moment where this is all unfolding, and I don't think all of the directions are clear yet. And it's certainly this interesting and complicated moment about a patchwork of regulations. You know, the EU has a very different 
set of ideas here and a regulatory framework than, say, in Great Britain or Australia or the United States, not to mention China, Singapore, Malaysia, Korea, Turkey. And I think we're, you know, starting to have those conversations and people starting to sort of think through what data is saved, how is it saved, how is it used, what does it mean to think about data as a standalone revenue source. So I think there were some really interesting conversations when... Um, Companies here started to, Radio Shack's the one I'm thinking of, right, or Dick Smith. Why do I can never get those two mixed up? Radio Shack, right? That when they sold up, they realized that one of the things that was their core asset was, in fact, their membership list of people yeah. who worked with them, right? So I think, you know, there's this kind of sense of the currency and commodification of data, I think, is a, an interesting moment, right? And, you know, we see it as much on the other side, right, about data breaches, and about yeah. how certain kinds of personal data now have a value to them that we haven't seen before. And I suspect that conversation is unfolding. Yeah. And I imagine it will unfold in different ways in different countries and also around different classes of devices. So, you know, what does it mean to think about internet-connected healthcare devices is very different than to think about internet-connected toothbrushes and internet-connected cars. And yeah. so these, you know, you know, all of those conversations are going to happen, and I reckon some of them will happen faster than others, and they'll look different in different places because that's always been true. I like that you like the Internet of Connected, Internet of Things, toothbrushes as much as I do. That's a whole area where I just keep going on and get it. It's, 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 it's when you get the counter for the number of brushes. Oh, well, they're on a timer. No, yeah, gamification no. engine and everything. <laughs> gain, so gain experience exactly. by brushing teeth. Points, um, mostly you gain points. So when Intel integrates with the maker community, obviously there is the knowledge barrier in order to be integrating when you're using Edison, when you're using Curie. You've... Somebody can have an idea, but they, if they fail, if they don't have the knowledge to implement their idea, then they have to outsource or um, interact with others. What do you think Intel can do based on you know, the knowledge aspect of not only development, but then when yeah. it becomes a stage beyond development to commercialization? Because we see SSC developers that use ARM-based products. They try to have their maker ecosystem where buy the products you design and then they're, they're able to rapidly prototype the design to a commercial aspect. Um, what does Intel and how does, how, how does your research show how those, yeah. those makers want to move on? So I, mean, I think that, again, that the kind of important complexity here for me is this looks really different in different places. Yeah. So, you know, we've done work in the U.S. with maker communities. Some of my colleagues have done work in China, a little bit of work in other places. And what makers want is really different in different places, right? And different mm -hmm. in kind of what they're interested in it for. Um, I think one of the things for Intel that we've been on a bit of a journey, that sounds odd as a, you know, say a company's been on a journey, but it has, over the last two years in this space, right? And I think, you know, for us, getting better at thinking about partnerships, about relationships, about this larger development community meant starting to go to the places where some of that was happening, right? So yeah. we started going to make affairs, which were not like the usual Intel events. And I think some of my colleagues were a bit like, um, there's a lot of people here doing a lot of things. You're like, yes, that's part of the fun. And they're like, um, there's a lot of really diverse things. You're like, again, part of the fun. <laughs> there was a sort of this moment where they're like, mm, so confusing, so many things. And I think part of it was just getting people excited about the possibility and then starting to work out, you know, maybe we should be holding hackathons. Maybe we should be inviting people to come and build stuff on our things and see where our own faults and weaknesses were and what could we learn, right? And what could we do to help make that better? And, you know, we've had a lot of hackathons over the last kind of couple of years. I think, you know, 30 a year for the last two or three years. And those have been kind of really good experiences. You bring some of the engineers that are working on the products internally. You have them actually 
As, 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 in, as in you purchase their idea and then hire the individual. No, as in we've brought the engineers inside the company who are working on those projects, right. as in the engineers who were building Edison and Curie and Galileo yep. and brought them to hackathons and said, okay, so here's someone who's struggling with a thing you've built. Right. So, like, how could you make that better for them? So, you know, sometimes it's good to encounter your customers <laughs> and to sort of see what could come out of those conversations. So we've been doing that. We've spent time and appropriate energy in thinking about what are the SDKs we should be building, what are the yeah. kind of kits we need to be putting together, how do we make those accessible to people. We've been trying to sort of think about all of that stuff and about, you know, who are the other people that should be in conversations with us? You know, what does it mean to think about bringing some of the stuff to schools? Because that's really important to the CEO and I think to the company of how you also engage the next generation of innovators. Um, and if this is where they're going, we want to go there with them. So yep. I mean, all of those pieces, right? And now all of that's, that's a journey. I mean, I know it sounds hackney, but it is, right? It's about, you know, how do you iterate here too? And we're getting better at it. And, you know, Rome. October. Oh, so exciting. But I can't tell you anymore. I can just say Rome, October. So exciting. That's that, that, that's a promotional plug. It is. Rome, October. So exciting. Well, that and the, yeah. you know, when I think, you know, Brian announcing the um, TV show, the reality TV show, I think will be yeah. kind of fascinating to watch unfold. As an anthropologist, you know, I'm like, oh my God, I want to see that happen. That's just going to be endlessly entertaining and fun. We see uh, maker just seems to be another word for engineer. Oh, really? Wow. Is that why I say I'm not a maker, because I'm also not an engineer? I mean, you know, in which case I'm doing it's, well. It's, 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 okay, so you have the maker, the idea aspect, and you have the maker, the application aspect. Obviously, you need the idea before you can do the application. Sure. Sure. But from Intel's perspective, you obviously want the maker term to be an all-inclusive term. Also, but Intel's not the one sort of fronting the maker language. No, no, I know. Right? I know, but from, from, from the Intel perspective. To be all-inclusive in what sense? As in anybody can be a maker. Sure. Do you ever feel that that term is exclusive? As in, because people see it requires a higher, high barrier to entry for, you know, for knowledge and understanding and learning, the education aspect? Oh, I'd hope not. I mean, I think one of the things that for me has been really interesting in watching the work that Dale Doherty's been doing at Make Magazine and with Make Affair for the last 10 years is the incredible diversity of people who actually end up coming into that conversation yeah. and into those things. I mean, there's been a lot of work done, interesting work in the States in particular, I know at best, of looking at the kind of people who are energized by making and bringing them into kind of the more traditional STEM subjects of science, technology, engineering, yeah. and maths. And we certainly see the maker stuff connects more to women and underrepresented minorities in the U.S. It's an, an easier path or a more compelling one. They can actually see stuff happening in real time, and it has a kind of a, a strong sense to it that way. I mean, for me, I think one of the things I'm always fascinated by is the diversity of ideas and experiences and stuff. And, you know, I go to make affairs pretty regularly, and the range of people that are there doesn't look anything like a classic engineering event. It doesn't look anything like IDF, usually. It certainly doesn't look like my days in my company. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not sure that I think of those as being interchangeable, maker and engineer. Right. But I think there is something about the hands-on experience of technology but where technology is broadly cast right not all makers are making things with computing some of it's metalwork and woodwork and glasswork some of it's about fabric oh there's sort of there's such an expansion of stuff going on there it's really kind of cool but i don't think of it as being it's funny you say that i think do i think makers are engineers well some of them are <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but a whole lot of them aren't and there's a whole lot of engineers who i suspect aren't makers there's also a lot of people making a lot of noise behind us so you know yeah hello to you know 
Ian's podcast audience out here. They're breaking down IDF around us, and boy, is it loud. Does Intel ever feel the need to, say, make it comes with a project that Intel feels is more beneficial to bring it in-house? As in, there's a wider application that Intel can provide. Do you ever see that happening? Based on an idea from a maker? I'm thinking about it. Um, I'm not the best person to ask. I mean, you know, I've not been running this space at Intel for the last sure. couple of years, but I know it is the case that there are ideas we think are compelling that we've wanted to help people with. I imagine this is a broad enough space that over the time horizon that may well happen, which would be kind of fun too, right? I mean, there's sort of something about, you know, where do ideas get come from? I think for us, some of the stuff that's been most compelling, at least in the short to medium term, has been the stuff we've been doing with schools. So yeah. there is a piece here about, you know, how do you start to bring next generation technologies and possibilities into schools. I mean, we've spent time in about 1,700 schools in 80 countries, which yeah. is kind of fabulous. I mean, I think of it as being akin to, I mean, you know, you and I both know the British government has kind of changed its notions about how technology stuff should be stored in schools. And I know there's been yeah. a bit of an interesting conversation about Scratch <laughs> as a programming language in schools, but I think there's something here, and that is a spectacular amount of noise behind me, there's something here about what that looks like, right? About, you know, how do you, even if it's not about a particular idea, how do you create the next generation of people who want to engage in innovation and invention and where might you sort of, where might you intersect with them and how might you compel them? I think that's kind of, that for me is sort of hopeful and would be a nice thing to imagine that there's a you know, cohort of kids who are going to get exposed to physical stuff, not just virtual stuff. That might be kind of nice. And it just so happens their granddads used to be engineers <laughs> anyway. Well, mine certainly did. My grandfather taught me how to make beer and how to make woodworking tools and how to do all kinds of things. And both of my, so my, that was my mother's father and he was a... Um, Chemical engineer worked at Monsanto most of my childhood, and then my father's father was actually a civil engineer who helped build the Snowy Mountains Hydro Scheme, and my dad runs a quality assurance consultancy these days, but when my childhood was a mechanic, uh, I used to build steam engines, so my mum always jokes that I got kicked out of my first anthropology class when I was four and a half because I could work out what matrilateral cross-cousin marriage looked like. It's bad for the grown-ups. My dad always counters that he taught me to dismantle my first engine when I was five. So, you know, I kind of feel like I sit in the middle of all of those conversations all of the time, but who knows where it will all go. Yeah. To wrap up, with, 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 with I'm getting the signal here. You are, because I got an aeroplane. I got to go to a different city. With the uh, strategy office that you're that you're in now, are there any um, particular overriding projects you're currently working on that may be sort of external to the developer forum here today? Yeah, so it's a new gig for me, right? I've not been in the strategy office until quite recently. I've not ever labelled myself as a futurist. Usually, I get really stroppy when people call me that. So it's kind of a new gig. Uh, I've got a couple of things that are ongoing, right? One of them is to start to get much crisper and clearer about thinking about the future, about what does it mean to talk about strategic foresight and context yep. and what does the next 10 years look like and how do you start to think about are there ways we can project out human desires and aspirations and think about what those will do around technologies and how do you have those conversations. So that's sort of that's a that's an ever ongoing preoccupation. I imagine I'm going to be doing that for like, well, the next 10 years, then I'm just going to have to reboot and try again. Um, but in the meantime, there are all these conversations that I'm really excited to kind of start thinking through about things like, what's the future of personal assistance? And what does that mean to go from talking about human-computer interactions to human-computer relationships? And what would relationships look like with machines anyway, right? What is that affectual landscape there? No idea, but it's kind of fun to contemplate, you know, through to the kind of how do we manage to think about the next class of algorithms? What would it mean to talk about algorithms of wonder and delight, not just recommendation? 
Yep. You know, what does it mean to think about a world of data and data analytics and how might we think about analytics differently, right? What does it mean to start visualizing data? It's why that proof of concept of the worry birds on stage is for yep. me so interesting. It's like, what does it mean to think about, well, there's a lot of data, but do you have to manage all of it? Yep. <laughs> Where might you want to kind of put it, right? And some other ways of thinking about that stuff. So you have to have all of those kind of conversations, which is kind of fun. And then at the moment, at a personal level, oh god, I'm so obsessed with robots, which can't be can't be healthy or good, <laughs> and not the scarabs and the dancing spiders, but about sort of thinking about the history of robots yep. at both a technical and a kind of creative arts way, so technically and culturally, and how you marry those two conversations to sort of think more broadly about the future of technology. So you know, I get to be thinking about lots of things, and mostly thinking I'm really glad that IDF is finished, <laughs> and I'm glad you got to be my last conversation. So thank you. Thank you very much, Josh Bell. You're very welcome, man. Anytime. Just not about the cricket. <laughs>